Thank you. That was lovely. Hello, good evening, and welcome to Gray Matters. 
running a little bit behind today, but uh, with such a delightful musical interlude to beguile your senses in the meantime, uh, I'm sure most people won't uh, be too concerned. Um, but let's uh, get started with Grey Matters for the week. Jim DeWire here doing another solo program uh, as Dick Whaley attends to important uh, business elsewhere. <clears throat> of course, uh, there's some recent uh, develops in both Syria and Egypt that are tempting to talk about, but I, I really think uh, at this point... Uh, going to hold off for a little bit longer before I go into too much detail on that. I suspect recent efforts by the Egyptian military <clears throat> to appeal to uh, rank-and-file members of the military uh, along religious lines is uh, a symptom of something that uh, could become an even greater problem uh, down the line. Obviously, uh, their attempt is to sort of smooth over their explicitly anti-democratic uh, overthrow of the Mosri uh, presidency. Um, but by appealing to uh, the religious convictions of those asked to enforce these crackdowns on protesters, uh, they seem to be uh, painting themselves into a bit of a corner there, um, saying that, well, you know, we needed to get rid of Mosri because... Uh, he was going to be too Islamic, but uh, to get rid of people who aren't really the best representatives is good Islamic policy. This is just sort of making up the rules as you go along. And I suspect that the real danger is when the Egyptian military itself begins to break down along sectarian lines, uh, we will have a major problem. Uh, that is the entire world. We'll have a major problem on its hands. The United States has been buying off the Egyptian military for decades. <clears throat> That's nothing new, and we get what we pay for as far as stability is concerned. But uh, it's a little bit harder to sell that argument uh, in today's world where more people know what's going on than uh, used to be the case. Uh, as far as Syria is concerned, uh, there's concern that... Uh, the United States' uh, maneuver to uh, bring some naval vessels uh, into the region sort of uh, begins to look like saber-rattling. Of course, we've got naval vessels positioned all over the world, and it doesn't take much difficulty to move them from around the other end of the uh, Arabian Peninsula to get them outside of Syria. Uh, but the last time we had uh, U.S. battleships stationed in the Levant, which is the eastern basin of the Mediterranean there, um, things didn't go so swimmingly. Uh, that was in Lebanon. And, of course, a number of Marines were killed there by a truck bomb. And, uh, as usual, the U.S. got very little for their expenditure and effort there. So I'm going to hold off for now on those, and let's see what happens in another five or six days. Uh, I doubt Obama is crazy enough to say, yes, John McCain is... Sounding pretty logical here. Let's start a war in Syria. Um, I think that uh, it's amazing how many people still just sort of have the gut reaction that, well, you know, we're the cops of the world. Uh, I guess we have to go in and fix this. Uh, no, we don't. Um, first of all, we can't afford it. Uh, we couldn't afford the uh, Iraq war. 
Uh, we can't afford the ongoing uh, Afghanistan debacle, uh, which, of course, as you've heard many times on Gray Matters here, we've been in Afghanistan for longer than we were in Vietnam. And we're uh, losing way more money than we lost in that war. And uh, the costs of the Vietnam War were part of uh, what put America behind the eight ball economically uh, with regards to the Arab oil embargo, um, the 73 war, uh, the failure of the big three auto industry to get behind the idea of fuel efficient vehicles, smaller cars, etc. Uh, these all stem back from the massive expenditures that this country was pouring into uh, the military spending that was the Vietnam War. Uh, so it's a habit we need to break. Uh, we can't afford it, and uh, very little good comes from our efforts. Um, so let's hope cooler heads will prevail. Obviously, if uh, the Syrian government is using sarin as is suspected or some sort of nerve agent some sort of gas um chemical weapons of course that was the great bogeyman that we were told oh saddam hussein he's got chemical weapons oh. but of course um lots of people do and uh who, where did saddam hussein get his chemical weapons well of course that's something nobody wants to talk about because that gets awkward and embarrassing because there are uh, business connections there that are revealed that Oops. People aren't supposed to know that. So um, I'm beginning to wonder uh, to what extent the upcoming Winter Olympics in Russia are going to be affected by the events in Syria. And I also suspect that given the uh, current, uh, we'll call it a social crisis within Russia and other parts of Asia, uh, with regard to horrible treatment, persecution, hassling, harassment, whatever you want to call it, of uh, gay people, uh, I think we're going to see a number of protests uh, at the Olympics, around the Olympics, uh, just simply on the uh, gay rights issue. And, let, you know, let's not even use that phrase, uh, human rights um, I think it, to set up the concept of gay rights as something special and separate, that's not really what we're talking about. Uh, the whole point of uh, equality is just that. All are equal. Uh, it doesn't matter with whom you like to dance. Uh, if you like to dance, you should be allowed to dance uh, with a consenting dance partner. And uh, it should hardly matter to anyone else. Uh, so we're just talking about equal rights. Um, if... Uh, you know, certainly we saw the uh, protest two Olympics in a row. Of course, back at that time, summer games and winter games were held in the same year. And they stagger them on a two-year, uh, you know, every two years you'll get either summer or winter Olympics. Uh, the 1980 Russian games were boycotted by the U.S., President Reagan. In um, the 1984, uh, California, the L.A. Olympics were boycotted by... Um, the Russians. And so those were two Olympics where the athletes who like to compete against the best of the best didn't really get a chance to do that because the politics of two of the more uh, athletically uh, gifted, inclined, etc. cetera, uh, nations uh, were not really participating. <clears throat> so there you have it. We shall see. 
So uh, because we're on the cusp of a new school year, I'm going to uh, share with you uh, an excerpt, as much as I can fit, of something from the brand new Harper's Magazine on math studies in American schools. Uh, it's called The Wrong Answer, The Case Against Algebra 2 by uh, Nicholson Baker, who's the author of a number of books and who has published widely. Um, and I'm going to sort of contextualize this with a few personal comments. Um, up until recently, I was employed by the Ann Arbor Public Schools as a secondary language arts instructor, a lit teacher, to be specific, in a local high school. It was a job I enjoyed very much insofar as teaching the actual content material, working with students, etc. Very enjoyable work. Uh, but over the 15-year run of my uh, teaching career, uh, felt increasingly bogged down and uh, not supported by the Ann Arbor Public Schools as an organization, uh, the state of Michigan as an entity. Uh, we're seeing very strange things happening in public education here. There's been a concerted effort by Republicans uh, and the right wing in general, let's just be fair and not single out a, a specific party. But there's uh, you can go all the way back to the late 50s, early 60s, when the John Birch Society made uh, schools a primary subject of, you know, we can't affect national politics, maybe, but you can affect your local thing. So get on the school board, get involved in local politics. And while there's nothing wrong with that, um, part of their agenda was always that Public education is bad. It's money that the state shouldn't have to pay. People should be able to go whatever they want. And we still see this argument with the school of choice, quote unquote, um, which allows people to take the money that their taxes represent uh, for education spending and use it in a private school. This, of course, defeats the entire purpose. Uh, public education is one of the great strengths of a free and open society. We've got to have uh, equal opportunity, equal access to education for all, regardless of uh, what neighborhood they might live in, uh, what the economic viability of that neighborhood is. And so this whole tendency uh, here in the state of Michigan to favor charter schools over public, to allow people to take uh, their money to this private school, uh, which may even be a religious school. So now there's, you know, state monies being spent on religious things. It's not supposed to work that way. Um, there's a lot of strangeness uh, going on. One of the stranger things was a couple of years ago, uh, the state legislature here in Michigan decided to increase the graduation requirements for high school. Uh, well, uh, that doesn't seem like a bad thing. It would be nice to have, you know, well-prepared uh high school graduates uh, off and running to college. Uh, but uh, the way the uh, things were changed around, uh, they simultaneously raised the bar and then also cut away some of the funding uh, that makes it possible for people to reach that new level. So now you've got a situation where uh, students uh, fail a class that uh, they're struggling with. Uh, the teacher doesn't have as much time to work with them one-on-one uh, -on -one because the class sizes have grown because of the spending cuts. And so uh, you look like you're doing the right thing because you expect 
children to learn and to be, you know, absorb this kind of material, but then you don't make it possible for them to reach it, you're really setting the schools up to fail. You're sort of dooming and damning the system to collapse. And then you can shrug and say, well, public schools don't work. There you have it. Let's just crash the whole thing and uh, turn it into a feeding frenzy for uh, business and uh, turn education into a money-making opportunity. Um, that's going to be very destructive to society long-term. And I noticed it in my own school uh, when individual programs uh, begin to face cuts due to lack of student enrollment in them. Of course, the arts are always seen as expensive. And, well, you know, does an art class or a music class really prepare you for the workplace? Uh, uh, of course, we know that school is about more than simply preparing people for the workplace. It's also, uh, hopefully, I think, uh, it should be seen at any rate as an opportunity to, you know, fully mature as a person with many intellectual interests, trying to find some connectivity to human culture, human history, and the arts and uh, music, literature, etc., are a very important part of that. It's not just entertainment. Uh, there is an actual, and I know WCBN listeners are well aware of this, uh, there is an actual uh, spiritual rejuvenation, a refreshment that uh, replenishes our spirits from the arts. Uh, but what happens is uh, kids fail their math class, and so they have to retake that class, and then that means that they can't take the art class, because that's not required anyway. Uh, but it also means that they might not be able to take the Know Your Auto class, which might lead to jobs, because they have to take this math class. And what happened in my building, and I'm sure this happened in other buildings here in town and perhaps across the state, <clears throat> English departments lost full-time employment. That is, the number of teaching positions actually shrank in the department, meaning that uh, the class sizes got bigger. Uh, whereas math departments did not shrink because more students were taking the sort of uh, take two, you know, you failed uh, algebra class last year, now you take the remake version, so you're taking another math class. In other words, math departments were staying the same full-time employment-wise because they were failing more students. This seems to me uh, shocking and bizarre, and of course it was very frustrating as an English teacher to deal with the increasing uh, size of classes year after year after year. It means that you can't afford to assign the kinds of writing that you know students need to uh, develop their skills, develop their powers of intellect, and so forth, because you just have too many papers to process. Uh, of course, some people say, oh, boo-hoo, you had to read a bunch of papers. Well, if you assign 150 kids a seven-page paper, uh, you've set yourself up for a piece of grading that involves reading over a thousand pages and then commenting on every page, sometimes a number of times per page. So think about that the next time you read a thousand page novel, what would it be like to read this in a week and comment on every single page? It's an onerous task indeed. So, while part of this is uh, in, 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 you know, based on my personal experiences as a student back in the 60s and 70s, when I personally struggled with math class, another part of it is based on my experiences as a parent watching my daughters struggle with math classes that 
go above and beyond their everyday needs as people who have other interests. And so why is it that there's so much heavy math uh, in our educational system? Well, Nicholson Baker has begun to uh, examine this situation. And let's take a look at some uh, things that he has uh, written here in this Harper's article, and this is, again, the uh, brand-new Harper's Magazine, the September 2013 edition. In 1545, Girolamo Cardano, a doctor, a wearer of magical amulets, and a compulsive gambler, published a math book in Latin called Ars Magna. The great art of the title was algebra. When Cardano was done, he knew he had come up with something huge and powerful and timeless. On the last page was written the declaration, written in five years, may it last as many thousands. The equations in Ars Magna looked very different from the ones we are familiar with. Here, for instance, is how Cardano wrote the solution to x3 plus 6x equals 20. And then there's a bunch of numbers and letters and blah, 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 blah. But the algebraic rules Cardano described and codified are variants of the techniques that millions of students are taught with varying degrees of success today. That's what's so amazing and mysterious about the mathematical universe. It doesn't go out of date. It's bigger than history. It offers seemingly superhuman powers of interlinkage. It's true. Mathematics said a professor named James Birney Shaw in 1918, is a kind of ancient sequoia of knowledge rooted in the labors and learning of the dead. Uh, and his quote is, its foliage is in the atmosphere of abstraction. Its inflorescence is the outburst of the living imagination. From its dizzy summit, genius takes its flight, and in its wealth of verdure, its devotees find an everlasting holiday. Well, that's very poetic, but I suppose a lit major might need to explain even that passage to a contemporary reader. Then why, Baker continues, if math is so great and timeless and beautiful, do millions of people hate it so much? In particular, why do so many high school students hate algebra? On an opinion-gathering website called Amplicate, 86% of recent respondents registered a hatred for algebra. Count me in on that list. Putting it near the top of Amplicate's like, a list of disliked high school subjects, just below geometry. Which, parenthetically, at least makes some degree of everyday sense. Grant Wiggins, an educational consultant and former teacher, told me it was, quote, a nasty gatekeeper course. Close quote. The compulsory Greek grammar of the modern era. Lots of students love math, of course. It comes easily to them, or it doesn't come easily, but they are willing to put in the hours, and they enjoy the challenge. That's my story, more or less. In high school, I, the author here, Nicholson Baker, uh, took a week to memorize the problem-solving tactics in a Barron's test prep paperback and got a 93 on the New York State Regents Algebra II exam, learning, in the process, almost no actual math. But many math conscripts are angry, many resigned, and some have reached states of real panic or despair. From middle school until I graduated, math lessons were like Vogon poetry, says one blogger. I only survive by gnawing one of my own legs off. Sarcasm, but uh, easy to understand the sentiment. Uh, here are a few more of the thousands of anti-math opinions I encountered on the web. And I'm not going to read all these because you could probably ask a teenager and get uh, 
pretty much uh, something along these lines. Uh, here's one student's comment. Uh, is poking my eye with a pencil an acceptable substitute for my algebra homework? Here's one. I need to take 11 algebra tests in two hours. It's 6 in the morning, and I've got to pass them or I fail, and I can't start school till I pass. Pray for the girl in perpetual algebra hell. Algebra, weightlifting for the brain, my ass. More like the death of all happiness in the world. I really hate algebra too. Wish I was dead. Well, why do these kids need to take algebra too? The reason these kids are upset is that they are required to do something they can't do. They are forced repeatedly to stare at hairy, square-rooted, polynomial, horseradish clumps of mute symbology that irritate them, that stop them in their tracks, that they can't understand. The homework is unrelenting, the algorithms get longer and trickier, the quizzes keep coming. Sooner or later, many of them hit the wall. They fail the course and have to take it again, and then again. As a result, they feel angry, dumb, sometimes downright suicidal. A college professor now in his 50s, who in high school unsuccessfully took algebra three years running, responded to a Washington Monthly blog post on the subject with his own tale of woe. And he wrote, I have no idea to this day why I find math, and algebra in particular, so excruciatingly hard, but I do. I admire those who can learn it, but I could no more master algebra than I could leap off the roof and fly. The experience of being made to reenact your inability over and over is deeply warping. If you continually ask a one-armed man to play the guitar, he'll either come to hate himself or hate you. Imagine for a moment that you are a high school student, halfway through a required Algebra 2 class. It's a Monday, and this week, it seems, you're moving into something called rational functions. Last week was a strenuous forced march through logarithms. You're sleepy, bored, and discouraged. There's an inspiring poster on the wall. It shows a photograph of Einstein in a sweater saying, Do not worry about your difficulties in mathematics. I can assure you that mine are still greater. The word asymptote is on the whiteboard, and below it, Quiz Thursday. The teacher is hardworking, jokey, smart, exhausted. She knows most of the kids in her class don't want to be there. You look down at your textbook, which is published by Pearson. It's very new and very heavy. It's called Algebra 2 Common Core. Your state has benefited from a federal Race to the Top grant that has encouraged your school to buy many copies of this new, expensive textbook, along with the associated workbooks and software licenses, all of which conform on every page and every screen to the guidelines spelled out in the new Common Core State Standards for Math, now adopted throughout the country. The textbook's cover is black with a nice illustration of a looming robotic gecko. The gecko robot has green compound eyes and is held together with shiny chrome screws. It has a gold jaw and a splayed gold toenails. Perhaps you like the idea of robotic geckos, and you might expect reasonably that there would be something about the mathematics either of geckos or of robots somewhere in this book. But there isn't. There is, however, at the beginning of Chapter 8, Rational Functions, an interesting high-speed photograph of a basilisk lizard, also known as the Jesus Christ lizard, that is dashing on tiptoe across the surface of a body of water. A facing caption says, Rational functions help explain how surface tension allows some animals to tread across a pond's surface. How can you graph rational functions and solve rational equations? 
You will learn how in this chapter. But again, you discover to your disappointment that the lizard image is just a bait and switch. There's nothing about surface tension or walking on water in Chapter 8. And indeed, the caption would puzzle an expert on reptilian locomotion since basilisk lizards don't actually rely on surface tension to run on the water. So what's going on with this book anyway? And does the average person really need to know such complex computations? Uh, it seems like the average person isn't expected to read uh, Chaucer in Middle English. Uh, that's something for specialists and enthusiasts. Why should math be any different? Well, as the article goes on to explain, this whole uh, pursuit uh, to uh, force-feed math to children has its roots in the Cold War. And like so many of our economic and cultural problems today, we're still dealing with the nonsense and the lies and the fabrications uh, that were sold to the American people as a part of the Cold War. And uh, it's 7.01. I'm going to wrap it here for that uh, this week on Gray Matters. Uh, we will continue talking about this next week. I hope at some point soon to talk a little bit about this new thing called uh, the Common Core now that I'm no longer in uh, the education world as a professional educator, I feel that the time has come for me to talk about these things on Gray Matters. Never wanted to do so while I was actually still teaching. But now that I'm a member of the public sector, the private sector, uh, not part of the world of education anymore, I think it's time for me to say what I think about the way things are being done and the problems that are there. Because ultimately, we just want to uh, help kids. We don't want to punish them. We don't want to abuse them.